Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Maybe you don't have the right match of your mental health support. Maybe you have got the wrong counselor. You haven't had the right medication. Or sometimes it's maybe that you haven't found your community yet. Hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. My name is Sam Webb and this show is dedicated to ending the stigma around mental health through community, connection and the hard-hitting truth. I'll be speaking with guests from all over the world about life to inspire and to educate people to speak up so that we can save more lives. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. How good is it to be back on this journey together? I'm so excited. I'm so grateful for you guys' time to come back week in, week out and and share this journey with me. I'm always grateful to have you part of this community and I hope that your own self-journey to, to wellness and health and and positivity is certainly making inroads due to this show. Uh, please feel free to share it with your friends, your family. Please share it with me. Any feedback that you've got, I'd love to hear it. And it's always my promise to you guys to bring you guests from all over the world who can bring you a wealth of understanding and knowledge in the mental health and wellness space and suicide prevention. And today's guest is going to bring you none other than the best of the best. Her name is Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. I was very fortunate enough to have met Sally a few years ago, actually, in Las Vegas when we were attending a a suicide and mental health conference. And, you know, we've stayed in touch ever since. She's a remarkable lady doing special things in the mental health sphere and male mental health in particular. She lost her brother in 2004 to suicide while she was a clinical psychologist. So I want to talk to her about that experience as a clinical psychologist and losing her brother at the same time to suicide and how that went down. But I also want to dive into her work in the male mental health space. She's been requested to speak at the White House. She's done a TEDx talk. She wrote the national guidelines for workplace mental health and suicide prevention. I really want to talk to her though about males seeking help and the different perspectives and angles and the breakthroughs and the data and science that backs her projects up and how she's been able to encourage men from all walks of life to be able to speak up and get the help that they need to get back on track. Whether you've got a mental illness, a mental health problem, or whether you're just suffering with trauma or some sort of setback in your life, they're all very relative. But what I'm trying to say is Sally comes from a wealth of experience. She's a suicide loss survivor. She's also a mental health clinician, and she comes from a very, very beautiful place. So Let's bring her onto this podcast. I don't want to give too much more away, but she's going to give you some really, really good tools and takeaways from this episode that I don't want you to miss. So stay tuned. Let's get her on the podcast. Welcome, Sally Spencer Thomas. Welcome, Sally Spencer Thomas. Long time. No speak, but 
Gee, I'm excited to have you on the podcast today. How are you? Oh, I'm just great. And I'm so excited to recross paths with you, Sam. It's been a while. It's been a minute, but I am so glad to come back and learn about all your great work. And likewise, it's it's great to, to reconnect. It's like we haven't really lost too much time in, in between. I mean, you, you're still doing amazing work, if not more amazing work than when we last connected. And you've been on your own little self-exploration journey and finding your own niche and what you're working at. But before we dive into all that, can you tell and, and explain to our audiences where we cross paths, how we met? We got connected through Kevin and Margaret Hines at one of the many uh, national and international conventions. They were sharing the great work that was happening out of Australia. A number of you really working hard to lift up the voices of lived experience. And I was like, that is where we need to be. That's where we need to head. So we've had a couple of, of dinners and a number of late night conversations with these crews that come together to kind of figure out how we can do this better. And so I actually can't remember the moment, but I remember we met up in Las Vegas and Portland and Australia and, and all over. And it's been uh, it's been such a it's such a joy to see so many so passionate about this topic. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's great to connect with people from all over the world, really, because everyone's got so many different stories and you really feel invigorated, educated, inspired and I guess empowered when you when you connect with people, I feel, with people like yourself especially who sh- who share such honesty and vulnerable stories from a very sacred place and I mean, that probably begs me on to my next question is why the space, Sally? What made you get into this? Where did it all start for you? I really want to find out on a deeper level where that started for you. Sure. Yeah. So I think I stumbled into psychology um, because I had really good professors in college at Bowdoin College. And I liked learning about people and their stories. And I liked understanding how people changed. And I just kept going. And also, I just love learning. So I kept going and going. And I got my um, you know doctorate degree in psychology. And then I went out into the real world. And I went, oh, no, I thought I wanted to be a therapist. But it turns out I have the wrong personality to be a therapist. I'm much more of a systems and cultural change. And um, some have called me an evangelist. I, I'm much better out and about than behind closed doors. So I shifted gears in the early 2000s to work at a university and do leadership development. And that I love. And actually, I think that's a lot of what you do with Livin is you help people find how their gifts and talents and passions fit into the needs of the world. And I love that. And that was a really great use of my psychology degree. And I was right in the beginning of getting that all figured out. And then I lost my brother to suicide in 2004. And it was devastating. You know, he had battled bipolar condition pretty secretively. The family knew and his, uh, and some of his closest friends from age 19 on, and he was amazingly successful. So nobody ever questioned that he had anything but, but joy and amazing talent, um, that he ever suffered, but he did. And he, he did, you know, much of it alone because, he didn't really have any peers that were in the same situation. And everybody just saw an amazingly successful person. Um, until the summer of 2004, you know, again, if you're familiar with bipolar condition, you know there's, there's swings in intensity all the time. And uh, he went really, really high up in his mania in that summer. And he just absolutely derailed his life very quickly, left his family, he ruined his business, he spent all his money, I mean, kind of all the harm marks of really destructive bipolar condition. And uh, we can trace it to the day that he met with his accountant and his accountant said, dude, you're broke, it's, it's over. Uh, 
And that news was really catastrophic to him because his identity as a successful and wealthy businessman was a big part of how he saw himself. So it was just a free fall from there on out, which was pretty much the last two weeks of his life. He came back to our family and we wrapped him in all kinds of love and tried to encourage him to get to resources. Um, But I think he just came back to say goodbye. And uh, I remember the last time we were chatting and he was asking me to tell him about this book that many of us had read called The Unquiet Mind. And I was like, look, there's lots of options here. You know, we can, we can get through this. It's going to work out. We're going to be okay. There's hope. There's hope. There's hope. And he said to me, but Sally, it's madness. And four days later, he took his life. Yeah, that must have really derailed you guys. How did you manage with? How did you manage that? And how do you, how do you manage that as as someone who's trained in this field? Like, what was that conversation like when you got a chance to speak with your brother before he took his life? What was that like? Yeah, I think he had already resigned, and that space that he was he was not going to try anymore. I think he was just kind of trying to placate all of us, and it and we did see it. We did know that he was in trouble and did our best. But I know that you know it wasn't long after. In fact, it was the night of his death that his very close friend from Atlanta called my brother's wife and said, oh my God, what do we do? And she said, no matter what you do, don't let him be forgotten. And so it was literally on that night that this man's wheels were turning. It was December 7th, 2004. And by January of 2005, Sean had convened all my brother's closest friends and our family to do something in our acute grief. And I know this is not an uncommon story after tragedy, including after a suicide tragedy, but that's where we found ourselves And we decided in that moment that we were both going to honor the life that he lived as well as prevent the terrible way that he died um, by doing bold gap filling work. We weren't going to replicate the work that other people had already done. We were going to find the biggest holes and try to figure out something that would fill that gap. Here I am. I'm about 16 years in my mental health provider journey, if you count my undergraduate years. And no one has really told me We talk a lot about it today, but this is back in 2005. No one had really told me that the majority of people who died by suicide were just like my brother. They were white men in the middle years. Unlike my brother, most of these men had also never sought any kind of mental health services, actually rarely showed up at any kind of healthcare services. So the whole idea of the message, if you're depressed, go seek help, was missing this whole group of people that were incredibly high risk for suicide. What was actually missing? Two things. So most of these guys, and we call them double jeopardy guys, held what we would call traditional norms of masculinity. The idea that they are the strong ones. They are the people that solve problems. They don't have problems. Other people depend on them. They don't depend on other people. And the whole idea of mental health services is is completely foreign and really counterintuitive. So when we started investigating this and we did a number of years of research and development in this area, we were listening to these guys. And again, you know, many of them were in traditional industries like construction or first responder communities or our military. Uh, and they would say things like, we pride ourselves on our, our our own resilience and our ability to solve problems. When we experience distress and despair, it's usually because the world is overwhelming. There's too much going on in the world, whether it's our job, money, our relationship, our parenting. It's stuff coming at us that's the problem. It's not us that's the problem. So as a first entryway, you can't come in the door talking about mental health because it's not how we're seeing our problems. And then secondly, 
the idea of talking to someone about our emotions doesn't seem like it's going to solve my problem at work. And I have to take off time from work and I got to drive across town and somebody's going to see my car in front of the clinic. Like it's too far from what I think is going to help me. So if, if you're saying that that is what's going on here and that is what I need, you've got to do a much better job connecting the dots for me. That's kind of where we started. And it kind of veered off into two paths that are continuing today. Uh, one of them is to try to figure out what is the avenue to reach these men and how do we start moving them along in, in thinking more proactively about mental health. Because I also, a lot of these guys, there's just one attempt and it's fatal. You know, so you can't wait for them to survive. You don't get a second chance. So yeah, so we got to back it up and see where things start to unravel for them and meet them where they're at. Not like say you have to be over here, but we see your pain over here. And here's a whole bunch of other guys that have had similar pain. So it's not that that was the other thing they told us like, yeah, you know, you mental health professionals with all your degrees, the way you talk about this stuff does not resonate at all. Okay, so hold on that because I find that very intriguing. So as far as the work and the research and filling this gap, so to speak, that you're looking at doing and which you are doing, there's no doubt about it. And we'll talk about that more in depth in a minute. But there's obviously a lot of data and a lot of facts and science that is enforced here. What what, what have you found that's most common? I know you've answered why the gap exists and what males sort of identify with the fact of, you know, trying to problem solve themselves and I can handle it and and we're going to try and come at them from a different perspective or a different angle what is that angle? No, oh, yeah. So that's the exciting part because that, that's what we asked them too. I'm like, okay, we get why we're missing the mark. How do we fix this, right? How do we, how do we fix this, right? That's a word that, oh, yes, fix it. I can fix things. They told us a bunch of stuff. They said, number one, we're much more likely to listen to a peer. Another guy, very similar to us, but maybe like one step above on this perceived power hierarchy we have in our minds, a guy we have vicarious credibility for, like a that guy, I respect. If that guy says something like I went through a thing and I reached out to this resource and I'm a better man or a father or a partner or a leader or whatever because of it, I'm listening to that guy way before I'm listening to you know, a clinician or a researcher. And then again, if the peer can then connect the dots to a well-vetted, trusted resource. Like a mental health professional. Right, right. But they have to get the warm handoff from someone they trust. So having that trust as like a as a gatekeeper to then passing them on to someone like a, who might be also a trusted mental health clinician or a professional, a lot higher chance of that person going down the, I guess, the journey of seeking professional help rather than just going, why don't you go see a mental health professional or here, I'll take you to a psychologist sort of thing. Is that what you're trying to say? That's exactly what I'm trying to say. And also the more that mental health resource, again, it could be a social worker, psychologist, the more that resource has a specialty area that addresses their need, the more likely that trust is going to happen. So again, we're seeing this with military and veterans, all kinds of mental health professionals getting specialty niches in being able to serve those communities or first responders. Because again, sometimes we got one chance. We got one chance for them to feel like they're understood and that they have hope that whatever they're going to invest here, whether it's their money or their time, is going to get a return on investment. They're going to feel better and they're going to be better. They're going to be better performers. They're going to be better husbands. They're going to be better fathers. Whatever it is that's important to them, they want to know if I spend my money and time doing this, I better have a good outcome. That was a really important insight that peers are that gap that was missing. Another important insight, which we really wouldn't have anticipated, 
we said, okay, we could probably figure out the peer thing. How do we actually reach you? Because you're not showing up in the mental health world. You're not really even showing up in healthcare. How do we get to you? And they're like, oh yeah, that's easy. And we're like, yeah, tell us, what is it? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, you make it funny. If you make it funny, our kind of funny, like we'll pay attention. And if it's really good funny, we'll actually even pass it along to other guys. And we went, are you freaking kidding me? Funny? You're going to try to make suicide funny. And they're like, well, I don't know. Sure. Why not? That's your problem to figure out. Once you get that figured out, you come back to us and test it out with us. And we'll tell you if you hit the mark. So luckily for us, we were partnering with a full service advertising agency called Cactus. Uh, and the Department of uh, Public Health and Environment in Colorado. But the advertising agency knew funny. They knew how to make the messages really engaging and edgy and funny right on the line, right? Right on the line so people would be like, whoa, what is that? And so we started testing out some concepts. And now this is a really important thing to understand. Sometimes my idea of funny is not your idea of funny, Sam. So we would kind of, you know, they would have their creative geniuses cook up all these messages and then we would put them in front of the firefighters or the construction workers or, or the military and they would be going like, that one's great, that's stupid, this one makes no sense at all, right? And then we would start to craft these messages. So that was another really key thing that humor made a difference, okay? So humor cut through the clutter. It got people's attention. It was unexpected in this space and it had to be done very carefully, obviously. Because a lot of people are very cautious whether I'm saying or doing the right or wrong thing and they're worried. That's why they're always constantly treading on eggshells, you know, because it's like, oh, I don't want to do the wrong thing. But here's what we know about laughter. All right. When we laugh, our brain pours out all of these chemicals that puts us at ease. This is why we love to laugh. This is why laughter is so important, is that we just start to relax into a situation. And when we evaluated our program, this is the Man Therapy program that we launched in uh, 2012, when we started to do the evaluation, that's what, that's what the folks told us, the end users, these guys that we were trying to reach. They're like, you know, I'm so tired of going to these dry, clinical mental health websites with endless lists of warning signs and risk factors and endless links of things that are supposed to help me. There's just no relatability there. It's like it's, it's they're not speaking their language so they're not believing they're not believing what they're trying to read or who, who's told them to go to certain sites if they don't believe what they're reading and it doesn't hit the mark you know that's right and they don't see themselves in any of it so the humor helped with that quite a bit and they said i, I got into a place where i could receive the information because the humor helped me relax into it so that was that was really cool um and then they also said you know if you can just please give us an opportunity to see if we could fix things ourselves before you send us to this very scary thing that doesn't make any sense to us, these professional mental health providers. And so we created a way for them to do that. And so the main experience when you people go to mantherapy.org is that right away, they are encouraged to take a 20-point head inspection. It was developed with lots of science behind it. It takes very standardized questions on depression, anxiety, anger, substance use, and it tweaks them a bit to put them in the brand of this man therapy experience. So they're, they're a little funny while also being serious. And so they can answer those questions in the privacy of their own phone, in their own computer, wherever they are, and very quickly get not only 
results back on how they scored, should I be worried about myself or not? But also content starts to pop up like Pinterest based on their responses. So for example, if they came up high on substance use and anger, and also they indicated they're a cop, boom, you know, uh, all of these resources come up. Some of them are self-help. Here's 12, you know, a couple, a couple of things you can do today to, to manage your anger. Some of them are peer resources. Some of them are professional resources that we vetted. And some of them are crisis resources, especially if they indicate anything related to, yes, I'm thinking about suicide, or they come up high across all the scales. We're going to direct them very quickly to crisis resources. What do you mean in regards to being vetted? When we started to do this, everybody and their sister, you know, started coming out like, oh, I work with men. I'm like, no, we're not going to post individual providers on this website. That's not what it's for. But we're going to help give these guys a shortcut to places where we have greater confidence that they're going to find that their needs are met. So for example, on the crisis resources, we wanted to make sure we had the veterans crisis line up there, right? So that they can reach someone who has understood their experience in military service. We also have a large group of mental health providers who have indicated and have credentials that say they specialize in men's mental health, and they also specialize in suicide prevention and intervention. And they have to document that they have taken certain types of training or have heard certain types of credentials in those spaces. It sounds unreal. So that's mantherapy.org. And we'll have all that in the show notes, guys, too, so you can click and go directly there if you want to check it out. But I want to pull you back up in regards to the, the humor, because I, I'd be open-minded to it, but not everyone is. Everyone's very different. So where do you draw the line? And do you have an example of something that could be seen as okay to use versus something that's probably taking it too far. Because I don't, I don't want listeners to think, okay, now we can make a big massive joke out of it. And it's, uh, I want to sort of draw the line so that it's not blurred for people. Yeah. So the humor is not around mental health. The humor is around traditional norms of masculinity and how they don't work in the space of mental health. It's a very important distinction. So one of our most popular taglines is you can't fix your mental health with duct tape, right? So a lot of guys who are fixers, they're using their duct tape uh, everywhere to like fix a pipe or, oh, for our first responders, uh, I think one of their favorite ones was, you know, sometimes it sucks saving lives, you know, to acknowledge that their work is really challenging and sometimes not very rewarded and it kind of sucks. Or for our military and veterans, the one that they love the best was, Sometimes when you're in the shit, it turns to shit and it's shit or something like that. Like they're irreverent, but it's in the language that they speak. It's not, you know, do you have clinical depression? So it's directly speaking their language in terms of what field or profession they're in. That's right. And again, we're making fun of of the traditional norms of masculinity that, you know, sometimes while it does make you super resilient in all of these other places, when you're dealing with overwhelming life experiences like trauma and addiction, your white knuckling just makes it worse. And that's, that's what the humor is kind of driving at. Like, yes, it's so important that you're tough, but in this space, it's not going to work for you. And that's what the humor is trying to get them to realize. Yeah. So guys, check out mantherapy.org. What would you say to someone right now who is struggling that has tried a number of different avenues? to try and seek the right help for them and it hasn't worked or it might be a, a partner who's been working so hard on their on their husband or their brother or whatever it is what's some advice or some tips that you could give to them based on some of the research and all the work that you've done over the years 
I feel that because it's hard to stay persistent when you're in so much pain, uh, whether you are the support person or the person living with the despair. And here's what I also know to be true. There are a lot of people who are just at the point of giving up and then they turn a corner and there is a relationship they never thought there would be in their lives, or there is an opportunity that they never thought would be there for them. Um, and so sometimes maybe you don't have the right match of your mental health support. Maybe you have got the wrong counselor or you haven't had the right medication, or sometimes it's maybe that you haven't found your community yet. You know, I've been involved in, in some recovery communities, and I can tell you when you find people who have had similar struggles with you, it just, okay, here we are together. We're a community, we're all imperfect, but we're gonna take turns here on who's having the really bad day. Uh, and then everybody's gonna come around that person and lift them up and make sure that they've got their emotional needs met and maybe some other needs too, like can I take care of your kids for the weekend or walk your dog or how can I support you? Um, so finding that right peer community is really important. Finding a place where you feel connected and that you you matter. I think if we look at Thomas Joyner's research again and again and again, what compounds the pain, wherever that is, whether it's depression, anxiety, substance use, whatever, trauma, what compounds that pain is a profound experience of being alone. And so however we can find our people, <laughs> our little communities or big communities um, sustain us through our hard times. So again, sometimes that's a peer group that has a similar struggle to me. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's a faith community. Sometimes it's a work community. It's a group of people that helps bring out the best in you. So that's, that's one thing is to, just to kind of explore a little bit. What do you love about the world? What calls you? And then see if you can find a community that you can be a part of. The other piece is to see if there's a pathway into making meaning out of your struggle. If you're in the throes of crisis, it's not the best time to do that probably. But again and again and again, we hear the stories of when people turn around, it's often because they find a calling and it may or may not be directly connected to their struggle, but it's, a, it's something that gives them purpose and a, and a sense of meaning. It gives people something bigger than themselves to concentrate on and to focus on. So they're sort of releasing themselves of the burden or the pressure within themselves because they're focusing on something more meaningful, more fulfilling to help drive their life forward. Because if that happens, that they, they almost feel indirectly feeling like themselves are getting better. Does that make sense? That's totally right on. Yeah. So when it comes to like making meaning out of your own pain, um, that storytelling stuff that both you and I really advocate for is huge. And again, whether you tell your story just to yourself or just to your friends and family, or whether you get up and do it like we're doing more publicly or in front of legislators, that ability to create that narrative for yourself where you own your own hero's journey is, is a really important part of that meaning making. And it's super important going back to the, to the men again, for guys to do it and for, for men to hear each other's stories. Um, we just uh, launched a book last week, Guts, Grit and the Grind, which I'm hoping you contribute to soon. Um, it's a series it's a men's anthology, a series of storytelling of different men from all parts of the globe, from all different backgrounds, all different types of despair and distress journeys, and all different types of recovery journeys. And it's just been like one of the most beautiful projects I've ever gotten to be involved in, to see all of these men like stand so strong and proud about what they have been able to come through, and then also feeling so intentional about how their journey can then help clear a path for another guy 
who was where they were before, feeling alone and isolated and dis- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Bearing. I love to be a witness to that. I think it's it's a miraculous thing to see. So gutsgritinthegrind.com, come join our community. And on that, I'm sure you've you've heard some amazing stories in your life so far with the work that you've done. What's been some of the best moments of your life so far through the work that you've done? So we've done a number of panels um, at professional conferences. Okay, so these think about these conferences, right? All of these PhDs sharing their really important research, very highbrow, very, 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 everybody's very, very important, all of this stuff. And we brought our, you know, lived experience panel of men. And, you know, there's not a dry eye in the room. You know, there's a firefighter up there talking incredibly powerfully, uh, emotion right there about what it felt like to lose his captain and how that impacted his own mental health and how he's now turned that around to be a leader in firefighter suicide prevention across the nation. You know, we heard um, another story of a man who's really well known in the suicide prevention field as being an amazing advocate, who then later in his career came out and said, oh, and I'm also a suicide attempt survivor. I just didn't tell you that before. Of course, that's what gives me the insight and the passion to do this work. And I'm not afraid to say it out loud, you know, number of those people that had already established their creds, you know, in the field as being experts are like, yeah, of course, me too. Why do you think I do this work? It's clearly not for the money, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, you know, military guys, I, one of my friends from grammar school, honestly, Brendan Fitzgerald and I rode the bus together back in the day. And he ended up doing several tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And now we're in our 50s. He's, you know, had head trauma, massive post-traumatic stress. And he is such a warrior. And he credits his turnaround, the fact that he is still on this planet, 
to his animal assistant's dog, uh, Russell. And so his story, I get chills just thinking about it, this beautiful moment where he gets to meet the dog and he's in the airport and the dog has to choose him, right? So he's standing there going, oh my God, if this dog doesn't choose me, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And the dog just comes right over and is instantly bonded and, and, and really has saved his life over the last decade. So it's stories like that that are so incredible for these men to share. And then they find each other uh, and across all of you know, the world and they connect. So we just did a United Suicide Survivors International panel with, um, with Greg Van Borsum and uh, Joe Williams, so a couple of uh, mates from over there, uh, with a couple of our guys. And now they know each other, right? And so they'll do other projects together moving forward. Yeah, it's so great. It's so great how it, it really does open up something far greater than the day itself in terms of connection, real human connection. And it can really set you on a, on a new path where you can find a higher calling and, you know, and it could be right around the corner. So if anyone's listening right now that's struggling whether it is with a mental health challenge or a mental illness or whether you're just struggling after something you know traumatic has happened in your life or whether it's something that is is really big in your own eyes know that you know with the right help and the right support there is a lot of lot of growth out there for you and you've heard it straight away from you know Sally Spencer Thomas that you know she's living proof she's been in this field for for quite some time the sound of passion coming out of your voice you'll be in it for a, for a fair few years to come too so i'm excited to see what's to come talk to me through the workplace stuff i'm, I'm interested in this the workplace mental health and suicide prevention because a lot of organizations are what i feel and i'm going to be blatantly honest and i'm going to speak it from the heart right now are very reactive in this space they've always been reactive rather than being proactive around mental health and the discussions within the workplace for example a workplace may may have lost an employee or a staff member to suicide now now let's get in the guys to come and do a talk or around mental health and let's do these mental health days but it was never something that was ingrained into their workplace before that what are your thoughts on mental health education and well-being and suicide prevention within the workplace and why our organizations not doing it. So going back again to the aftermath of Carson's death, you know, realizing that the majority of people who die by suicide have never stepped foot in a mental health space or in healthcare in general, we're not going to get them over there. But most of the men who died by suicide were working or they were just working or they have an immediate family member that's working. So logically, it makes sense that the workplace is the most cross-cutting system we have, more so than healthcare, more so than education, more so than faith. It's work. Most working-age adults are working. So while that's all logical, that doesn't mean it's easy. So we started a, a workplace suicide prevention training and program back in 2007 called Working Minds. We worked really hard on it. It was you know, based on the best evidence that we had back in the day. And we launched it and we're like, ta-da, suicide prevention in the workplace. You know, we're going to save so many lives and prevent so much suffering and it's going to be awesome. And people are like, what? Suicide prevention in the workplace? No, that's a medical issue. People need to take that stuff up with their doctors. And we were like, but they're not. And they're here. So maybe you could do something to help. Well, it didn't really take off right away. We had some slow grow in the beginning, but it was, it was very slow. We didn't really have good data to show that it was impacting workplaces. We didn't have stories like we have today. Uh, and then that started to change. 
um, about 2010 to 2014, we had a couple of really bold leaders who stepped into the, into the arena. Um, the military, clearly by that point in time in the United States, it was a major story that our uh, service members um, were having increased rates of suicide. So they were working really hard to try to figure things out. Then the first responder community, both firefighter and law enforcement at the top levels of their international association started to say, we can no longer deny that suicide rates are at par or even greater than line of duty death for these men and women that are out there trying to protect us. Um, and then a couple of really bold leaders in the construction space said, I don't want this on my watch. Everything you tell me about who's at risk for suicide describes the people that work with us. We can't wait, right? And so we had all these early adopters who started to uh, move things forward. And often they had had a loss or had had a struggle themselves. Um, and they started creating programs like Mates in Construction, um, which is, of course, the gold standard for everybody around the world about what can be done through workplace initiatives. And then in the United States, we started getting data, which was the game changer. We started getting data from our Centers of Disease Control and Prevention that said, these industries have high rates of suicide and we could benchmark, here's the general population, here's construction, here's mining and extraction, here's our agriculture, farming and fishing, like here's transportation and manufacturing, all these male dominated industries. And people went, oh my God, like we didn't really know this, we kind of knew it, but we, now we have data. So because of the early adopters now had stories and because we now had data, and now we have COVID and social unrest and we have all these other stressors. Like it is one of the top stories of the day is that workplaces are, are experiencing unprecedented levels of distress, despair about economic conditions, about racial injustice, about the future of our world. Like it's showing up at work in a big way. So luckily, there's been several of us that have been prepared for this moment. We have, you know, 15 plus odd years of program and training and curriculum and guidelines. Luckily also for us for this moment, last October, um, United Suicide Survivors International, along with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and the American Association of Suicidology, together, this three-legged stool partnership launched our nation's first set of workplace guidelines for suicide prevention. Weren't you an author on that? I was. I was uh, amongst many other brilliant people, Dr. Jody Jacobson Fry and Maggie Mortali. And we have a whole committee of about 20 people that did focus groups hitting you know, hundreds of people like there. This was a labor of love for many years. When you go into a workplace, for example, in Australia, they've got a workplace health and safety guidelines around that. So you, what you're saying is you guys have created its first mental health and suicide prevention guidelines in the workplace. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. And to give credit where credit is due, you know, Suicide Prevention Australia had a position statement on workplace suicide prevention that they published, I'm going to say back in maybe 2016-ish in that area. And then also Canada has a set of psychological safety standards that comes through their government. You know, and we were looking at those models to say, okay, those are great what would work here in the United States. And so we took some of that and adapted it and tested it out with people and, and landed where we landed. So rather than you know a 200 page PDF that's gonna be outdated in, in a year and a half, that's not what we did. We created an interactive portal where people can go in and kind of get to understand their own community. So the first step is take a look at yourself, whatever you are, a professional organization, a union, a workplace, 
Um, do some self-assessment on where you're strong, what your strengths around bolstering mental res resilience and mental health, um, and where are your areas of needing change. And one of the ways that we are intentionally different than many of the traditional workplace mental health programs is that we say, yes, it's important to get a clear pathway for people who are suffering to the supports that they can help them, but it's not enough. It is not enough just to get the troubled people to help. Sometimes you also have to figure out how are we, this workplace, contributing to people's despair and own it and fix it. That's a cultural thing normally though, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is related to culture. Okay, because at the end of the day, a lot of people look for quick fixes, right? And we, we can't deny that. A lot of people, especially males, they want to learn quick fixes. How can I fix, 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 fix things? There's not a lot of patience there. The There's three not... steps too. Yeah, correct. Right? And so workplaces, right, are probably looking for quick fixes as well. And unfortunately, there is no such thing as a quick fix because to change a culture within a company that's been ingrained for years, some are 50 plus years, you know, depending on the organization, where do you start with that? That's a whole project in itself. Then you throw on what the organization has to do day in and day out to survive. Then you have to do everything else in regards to making sure that the company is making a profit so that they're alive still, you know what I mean? So there's a lot at play here and it's not as easy as it sounds. No, there's a lot to this, but it's also not, it's not a quick fix and it is manageable. So especially in this time of heightened prolonged crisis, we have an opportunity here to shift culture like never before. What we know about brains in crisis is that things map fast because we have to, we have to adapt really quickly. So knowing that there are broken pieces of your culture, this is the time to fix it. And we also know that brains in crisis under toxic stress, we can't deal with a whole lot of information. I don't know if you remember back. I remember when this first hit, when Italy shut down and everything locked down, like on a dime, I lost like a week and a half. I don't even know where it went. Like, Poof, my brain wasn't working whatsoever, you know? So we, we know that we've got to do what we call small drips of change over time. Small drips, small pieces of information, small changes um, is one way to get there uh, because the brains, we just can't take in massive things. It'd be too overwhelming and it would add to the distress. So easily. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Overwhelming, absolutely. yeah, yeah. So so one of the things that we've been doing just in this in this covid space is that we've been I'm doing what we call coping cards with pulse check surveys and we've been doing this with small military units as well as massive global companies and and the the process works the same. So about every 6 to 8 weeks or so we give out a little survey to the people and we just basically say how's it going out there? Uh, are things better than they were before? Are things worse? what's helping, what's hurting, what, what do you need? And that's it. It takes five minutes. We get all kinds of really important data back about who's struggling and why. And then we craft in response to that. So it's very nimble. These little tips, you know, here's a hack to help you regulate anxiety, or here's something you could do to help your kiddos. Within a minute, they've got a tip. Um, and people are, have been very receptive to that. And workplaces have used it because it shows very quickly that how they're responsive to not only their employees, but their employees' families' well-being. Win, 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 everybody wins. So that, that's an example. But going back to the suicide prevention guidelines, you know, we try to make it a, a light as lift as possible to get people enrolled in the concept. Uh, because if you, if you say like, yes, we're going to change your culture, and then it's going to be this big expensive thing, like people are like, 
know. I, I just don't have the bandwidth. It's just too much. It's, it's overwhelming in itself. Yeah. We've boiled down, like, here's the vision of where we could go. Here's one thing you can do today. And we've actually, we also realized we got to recognize and reward the early adopters, the people who are like, yes, this is important. How do I figure out? And then their competitors are just like, what are they doing over there, right? So we've created a badge process that after a certain number of defined action steps, they get a little badge. You know, I'm a bronze level pledge partner in the workplace suicide prevention. And they can put that, you know, in their signature line or on their website. And people are like, what the heck is that? Well, we're taking action steps to save lives. What are you doing? You know, it's kind of like when, when the NBA stopped playing to, to talk about Black Lives Matter and all the other professional sports teams were like, golly, we probably should do something. Yes, you should, right? When you model it, then other people start to step into the space. You're doing awesome things. You, you've got your hands full. It sounds like you, you, you're very, very, very busy, and I'm very grateful for your time, as I'm always grateful for everyone's time, as are, I'm sure, our listeners. I want to ask, though, we talk about workplace mental health, and I know that's your niche right now. That's where you're spending most of your time. What are your thoughts, just quickly, for everyone who's listening from a mental health arena for students and for young people have you done much work around that do you think a similar program or programs similar to what you're already embarking on could be something that could be suitable for for young people going through school yeah so uh, I, as i mentioned i started my career at a university and i miss so much working with the 19 to 22 year old community because they're brilliant and they're inspired and they've got big ideas and lots of energy, and they're trying to find their place in the world. And it's just a really exciting time. So from where I sit now, you know, working with a lot of companies, people in the middle years, mostly, I would say that the upcoming generation uh, in many ways is way beyond. They're so far out in front of this. They've been talking about social emotional wellness since kindergarten, and they have a language for it and they have a comfort for it. And at the same time, they have a whole unique set of stressors, you know, as controversial as 13 Reasons Why was when it came out and, and kind of the outcome that it had. It also really opened the door for parents in particular to say, huh, come to think of it, I never had to deal with sexting when I was 17 years old. I didn't have cyberbullying as a stressor in my life. I wonder what that would have been like at that time, right? So we were, we were made aware of all kinds of different types of stressors that we didn't go through and how maybe we could get some empathy and compassion for what that's doing to younger adults' mental health. And I don't know that we'll ever totally understand because it's a whole you know, generational experience. But I also know that while those things are stressors, they're also amazing tools. And that is what you know, young adults are trying to um, move forward is how can we leverage the power of social media and all of these um, technology oh tools Good, just like you're doing with this podcast, right? And they're very adept. They figure stuff out so quickly. Um, and they're mentoring, you know, their parents and, and the older adults, like, you're kind of getting it wrong. Here's how you actually do the thing. And that's very humbling and super important. It is true. And it, and it is forever changing. But I feel, I feel the difference between young people, especially in school versus younger adults. I feel young people, are, they're very open to learning new ways if they're effective but you've also got to come from an angle and speak their language i think the other place that they're getting it right more so than the older adults is that 
young adults really understand the social determinants of mental unwellness and distress and suicidal despair. They understand things about like economic inequality, um, racial injustice, uh, LGBTQ, and how those all fit in to our overall community uh, well-being, right? And we could send people to counselors all day, but if we don't get that social determinant stuff right, uh, we're never going to get in front of this. And that's what I hear them being loud about is like, you know, stop with everybody get, needs to get on antidepressants. How about we, we stop treating each other like crap? How about we do that? You know, um, and that stuff is super inspiring. Yeah, it is. And then a lot of the conversation, I know, f- for example, today we've, we've spoken a lot about, you know, someone who may be struggling with a mental illness, for example, what strategies and approaches you can have on that person or people so that they seek the right help that is correct for them. And it's going to vary from person to person. No one's the same. You and I both know that. But a lot of the conversations that we're always having, right, and it's something that I hear all the time because I'm in this space, and I'm sure you do too, is X amount of people per annum. We look at the doom and gloom. How many people struggle with mental illness? How many people reach out and get help? Who aren't reaching out and getting help? What's those percentages? How many people are taking their life? How many are attempting? We always look at those doom and gloom. But what about the people who, who aren't suffering with a mental illness but still sit on the mental health continuum because we all do? And we're all either happy and then um, some people are mentally unwell or struggling or they're dipping or whatever word you want to put around that. And then people are thriving, surviving, living, whatever you want to say on that end. How do you help those people as well so that they can be included in this one conversation so that this is all inclusive and it's not just focusing on the people or peoples that are suffering with a mental illness? You're right. You can't go through this life without walking in the river of an overwhelming life experience or an overwhelming time. And like, I, and I remember, you know, like my, my brother's death was a catastrophic experience in my life, but I had a pretty expected prolonged and traumatic, but course of grief that, that fit that experience. Right. So I, it was, it was kind of like, yes, this was an upending event. It took me a long time to get back on my feet, but it was all, as expected. Later in life, in 2012, I would have what I called my first, and knock on wood, hopefully only episode of major depression. And it was qualitatively different because it was nothing like I had ever experienced before. All my abilities to cope were out the window. And I just circled down a toilet. You know, that's it. I stopped eating, stopped sleeping. Everything fell apart. I couldn't think clearly. Um, and for me, my pathway through was my community, um, my suicide prevention community in particular, stood by me and said, you know what, Sally, we love you no matter what. Doesn't matter if you leave this organization or if you're on this board. Doesn't We don't care. We love you. They telling me that over and over again. And then I got on a little medication just so I could sleep again. And that re-regulated me and I was able to pull through to the next phase, right? So I think I think if you come to this assumption uh, that, like you said, we are all in this and at some point or another, we're all going to be brought to our knees. And to be mentally prepared for that moment and to know like what it happens, it there's a way through it and there's lots like there's a buffet that everybody has sometimes it's hidden but it's all there um and some people will resonate with the crisis services that are anonymous and some people will find a beloved counselor some people will need to go into inpatient treatment to get sober or whatever it is some people will find a peer group like a recovery group that just nails it for them some people are going to find all kinds of self-help tips like yoga and meditation and that's what works for them but, but to make the assumption, we're all going to take our turn here. Like everybody gets a chance. And actually, as hard as it is to go through things like that, 
almost always you learn tremendous amounts about yourself, about the world, about your strengths, about who you can trust, about what, you know, all spiritual awakenings, all kinds of things happen in that space of our darkest despair. And I remember when I was in that depression, kind of at the bottom, I remember thinking like, someday I'm going to have to write about this, of what it feels like to be a psychologist and a suicide loss survivor in this dark place. I can't do it today, but I'll probably write about it in the future. And just that thought alone, like someday I'm going to make meaning out of this. I think you are already making that indirectly, but it's certainly something I'd love to chat with you about in the future. We could talk all day, Sally. You're a wealth of knowledge, wealth of expertise. I'm so grateful that you've been on this podcast and I'm so lucky that I've been able to reconnect with you and get your time today for sure. Yes. And I can't wait to return the favor. So we're going to get that on the calendar soon too. You're going to come on over and be on my podcast. You'll be hearing from me, Sally. On behalf of myself and the entire living community, I want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing with us your journey, where it all started. Your passion is is unparalleled. That is clearly evident. Sally, look after yourself. Take care. Much love. And thank you again for all of your help. Thank you so much, Sam. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you again for listening in to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. Please like, share, and spread the love to as many people as you can. Let people know that you subscribe to the show. Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation could save a life. If you want to continue this chat, please join me on the podcast Facebook group at livin.org. I can't wait to share the next episode with you, but in the meantime, stay well, keep living, and remember, it ain't weak to speak. Thank you and have a top day. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.